Edward Lorenz was a physicist working at MIT in the 1960s, building one of the first computers to model weather systems. So this would have been really back at the very beginning of weather forecasting, advanced weather forecasting, back in the 60s. One of his roles is he would input certain meteorological observations into a program, and then it would subsequently print out you know, a weather forecast, a weather pe- pattern that was um, expected. Well, one day he made a mistake, and the input that he was supposed to put in would, would have been to the sixth decimal place, so what, one, 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 one hundred thousandths of uh, a place. The famous number he was supposed to input was 0.506127. But for one reason or another, he ended up inputting it only to the third decimal place, or 0.506. Later, he found out that he had made this mistake, and he decided to run the calculation again, this time with all six decimal places, thinking naturally there would be only a very small difference, and it would have a little effect on the weather pattern. You know, 506127, 506. But when the computer printed out the new weather pattern, it was, to his amazement, completely different. Uh, it, totally different than the previous. And as he later explained, he said, it was almost as if a tiny atmospheric disturbance in Peking, China, no greater than the beat of a butterfly's wings, should a week or so later give rise to a full-scale hurricane in New York City which then became the name of his famous discovery, the butterfly effect. And ever since, meteorologists can justifiably uh, blame the butterflies in Peking for all of their botched weather forecasts. But such is the complexity and the interconnectedness of the Earth's atmosphere. And a a tiny disturbance can generate something big. Well, let me try to try, uh, bring that back to the book of Acts. We just started this new sermon series in Acts. And if, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, Jesus ascends to heaven. He, he heads from the Mount of Olives into heaven. There he is seated at the right hand of the Father in the place of authority. We call that Christ's session in heaven. And what I want you to do is just to imagine for a moment, there he is, seated on the throne. And uh, the the th- the activity that he does, he simply, he goes, <sighs> he just breathes, just his breath. It's a small and tiny breath in heaven. And down on earth, 120 of his disciples are gathered together praying, worshiping, and what do they feel down on earth? <sighs> right? This huge tornadic wind we talked about last week. On the day of Pentecost, this wind blows through the city of Jerusalem. It, it's, it's the heavenly butterfly effect. And they are filled with the Spirit. Uh, it says that they're anointed with fire by the Spirit. These disciples go on on the day of Pentecost to proclaim the mighty works of God, uh, that God has done in this Messiah, raising him from the dead. And they do so in languages that they had never studied, that they were completely unfamiliar with. And the travelers to the city of Jerusalem from all around the Roman Empire hear the mighty works of God in the Messiah being proclaimed in their native tongues. And everybody's like, what in the world is going uh, going on? And so we pick up in verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. 
It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my slaves, my servants, both men and women, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, by wonders and signs which God did among you through him. And as you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible Impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave. You will, to the the grave being here, Hades or Sheol, the realm of the dead. Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. For you have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And that was Psalm 16. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that one day he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and he has poured out what you now see and hear. For David, for David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, Quoting Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all those who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And verse 40, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Let's pray. Our Father, open our hearts and our minds 
by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might receive your word with faith and with joy uh, and with godly fear. For we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You never forget your very first sermon you preach as a preacher. You never forget how bad it is or was. (laughs) My very first sermon came, it was during my first year of seminary. I was back in Phoenix at my home church. I think it was during Christmas break. Aaron, you can let me know if if that was true or not. But, uh, oh, it was bad. (laughs) It was so bad. I tried to give an illustration using George Washington. I mean, we all know how how powerful George Washington illustrations are in sermons. Everybody's clamoring for a George Washington illustration. Yeah, I forgot it in the middle of the sermon, or in the, in the, in the middle as I was delivering it, and I just you know, bungled and butchered the whole thing, which I suppose is you know, pretty common for first sermons. But this was Peter's first sermon. And Peter, he too was a seminarian of sorts. Peter had studied for three years in the, the seminary of Jesus Christ, right? Three years with Jesus, And yet on the day of Pentecost, when he stands up and he preaches his first ever sermon, what happens? 3,000 people, we talked about the significance of that number last week, but 3,000 people are converted. And I I doubt very much, I mean, Peter went on to preach other sermons. I doubt very much that he preached another sermon where even 50 people were converted at the same moment. I mean, let alone 3,000, and yet here it is. 3,000 people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not beginner's luck. It's, uh, it's the butterfly effect. One thing we're going to find as we go through the book of Acts is Acts is littered with sermons and speeches. About one-third of the entire book are, are monologues from speakers. And what you'll realize when you read through is that these sermons are not the sermons in their entirety. They're far too short to be entire sermon manuscripts, and they sound way too much like Luke's language to be exactly as though they were the language of the original person. And, and so you say, what's going on? Well, what, what happened, we think, is Luke, who wasn't there for most of these sermons, he went and he interviewed people who were there. And by virtue of interviewing them and listening to, to them uh, talk about the sermon, he was then able to write down a reliable synopsis of the message. And that's what we get here in the very first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost. Funny enough, it turns out to be a three-point sermon. You wonder where preachers get the habit of preaching three-point sermons. A habit that those of you who've listened to me preach for a while know that I largely resist, but it's a three-point sermon, and it's focused on three different passages. First, the prophecy from Joel. Second, Psalm 16 from David. Third, Psalm 110 from, uh, of David. What is the guy going to preach in his very first sermon? You might suppose that Peter would preach about the Holy Spirit. I mean, the, people, the disciples had been filled with the Spirit. They're prophesying or speaking in the Spirit, in languages. That would seem to be a perfectly natural. Let's talk to everyone about the third member of the Trinity. That's not what he preaches, is it? What is the very first Christian sermon about? It's about Jesus. It's Jesus. A rousing and, frankly, accusatory sermon. 
That's going to be one of the characteristic features we find of the sermons in the book of Acts. They are accusatory as they kind of stick the finger at the listeners and say, you're the ones who crucified him. You're the ones who crucified him. And that's what he, he does. I wonder if you ever considered this before. Pentecost, we talked about it, was 50 days after the Passover. Penta, 5, 50. 50 days after the Passover was also 50 days after what? The crucifixion. And for 50 days, the, the Bible strongly indicates that for 50 days, these disciples, first followers of Jesus, remained largely silent during those 50 days. They were not out and about talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were walking around Jerusalem preaching about Jesus during those 50 days. Part of those 50 days they spent up in northern Israel in in the region of Galilee. But they weren't talking about Jesus. And for 50 days, the Jewish leaders who had put Jesus to death had had must have thought, they, they they must have been very pleased by that silence. And they must have thought that their, uh, their crucifying Jesus was an absolute success. That, that messianic fake, well, he's dead. And now we can, you know, go on, life is normal, turn the page. Whew, that problem is, uh, is, uh, is, is done with. Uh, Peter stands up and, and he says, you, you thought you got rid of him, but he's back. <laughs> he is back. And he, he, he points the finger and says, he is back. Um, and you can continue to resist him and be crushed. Uh, or you can be saved from this corrupt generation. The very language that he, he uses. I mean, resurrection, depending on who is resurrected, can be either very good news or bad news. If you're one of the people who put this guy to death, it's very bad news. Terrifying news that he's alive. But Peter um, so powerfully says, even to people complicit in the murder of Jesus Christ, he powerfully says that there's hope for you too. The forgiveness of sins for you too. So we're going to follow Peter's sermon outline uh, by just going through those three passages briefly. Beginning with the prophecy of Joel. Look at verse 16. As I try to get my Bible open to 16. These men are not drunk, 15. They're not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Many Jews in the first century believed that they were living in the last days. Many Jews in the first century spent a great deal of time reading the Old Testament prophets and all of the Old Testament, um, memorizing it, pondering it, puzzling over when God would do the new thing that he promised he would do, the renewal of Israel through the Messiah, the the justice for the oppressed, um, the final prophet that Moses had predicted. When when will that happen? When will these things uh, take place? What will be the signs that indicate that the new moment had, have arrived? And here you get one of them. Oh, later, what verse was it? The, the, the blood and the, the fire and clouds of smoke and the sun being turned into darkness and the moon into blood. All of these, he indicates signs above and signs below. Uh, what, is, what do those refer to? Well, they could refer to solar eclipse. 
They could refer to a lunar eclipse. Um, they could, it's apocalyptic literature. And you know, through, throughout church history, the church has done a really bad job of taking this kind of language and saying really foolish things about it. 2014 and, and 2015, you may not remember this, but there were a series of four blood moons. And clearly a blood moon is being spoken about here. Four blood moons. Uh, you could see them from the United States of America, each in succession over the course of, of less than a year's time. And then, of course, there were Christians who stood up and said, this is the end of the world. Jesus is coming back. 2015 is the year. And, you know, everybody afterwards was just like, facepalm. No. (laughs) Some of us grew up with a a lot of these kinds of predictions of the the ends of the world, which turned out to be rather embarrassing misses. Notice that Luke, or Peter, gives no comment about these signs above and these signs below. It really would have been nice if he did, (laughs) if he had specified more for us exactly what they referred to. You know, it could be used to describe, often it's used to describe in the Bible, earth-shattering works of God's judgment on earth. And many competent biblical scholars believe that this Joel language of blood and smoke and, and all of that was at least partially fulfilled in the fall of the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. Um, that certainly fits with other passages in the book of Luke. But in the Old Testament, we said it last week, God's spirit was normally poured out on just a few, on kings and on priests and on Samsonite warriors, right? But here it says that with a sudden burst of fresh divine energy released through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's spirit has been poured out upon a lot of people all at once without distinction. The spirit comes on slaves and freemen, and males, and females, and young, and old men, all of them. They are all given the spirit. And notice that it is a spirit, it's a, the spirit is a spirit of dreams. He is a spirit of visions. He is a spirit of, of prophecy. All of those things will become very important as we move through the rest of the book of Acts. This isn't a complete list of it, but if you want to follow along, we see the spirit of dreams and visions and and prophecies at work. In Acts 5, by the spirit, Peter is able to uncover the deception of Ananias and Sapphira. In Acts 6, the spirit tells Philip to run to the Ethiopian's chariot, chariot and then he snatches him away to another place. In Acts 10, Peter sees this vision of a, a sheet up in the heavens, and he is told by the Spirit to go to Cornelius' house. Um, and he's told that Cornelius' Cornelius's servants are coming to him. Uh, Acts 11, Agabus prophesies by the Spirit of a famine. The famine is very important in the book of Acts because the famine becomes the, the key moment that Paul can kind of unite the churches the non-Jewish churches out throughout the the Roman Empire that he establishes with the Jewish churches in the city of Jerusalem and and, and Judea by taking a gift from these non-Jewish churches, a famine relief gift, and bringing it to the others. That was prophesied by the Spirit through Agabus. In Acts 13, the Spirit tells the saints at Antioch to set apart Barnabas and, and Saul. Then the Spirit sends them out on their first missionary journeys. In Acts 15, the decision of the Council of Jerusalem, it says, comes from the Spirit. 
and the elders and apostles. In Acts 16, the Spirit keeps Paul from going into the, Asia, into the region of Asia and Bithynia, but prompts him to go to Jerusalem. And I, I could go on and on. It happens again and again in the book of Acts. I think you get the, the point. The Spirit is a, a spirit of dreams and of visions. And he is a spirit of, of prophecy. This prophecy, Joel says, is going to come upon all people. You say, well, how does that happen? And I think quite simply, like I, I, think we, I think we can all say that we are all prophets. If you declare, if you declare that Jesus the Nazarene is the Messiah and the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament, of all the predictions of the Old Testament, you are prophesying. That is a form of prophecy. And that is exactly what they did out into the rest of, of the world. And even throughout church history, the Spirit has continued to inspire her, her people, her leaders, with visions and, and dreams and gifts. And you know, there's so many people in church history, the Monicas and, and the Perpetuas, the Gregories and Patricks and Benedicts and Francises, the Thomases and Luthers and Wesleys and Hudson Taylors, all of whom were given the same gift in plenty of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to have him until Jesus returns because we're going to be in the last days. We're still in the last days until Jesus returns. And the Spirit will continue. He will continue to work wonders throughout the earth. Let's now move on to point number two, to uh, how Peter, in his sermon, uses Psalm 16. You know, we are tempted, this is actually what gets me really excited uh, from his sermon. We're kind of tempted to rush through these two psalms very quickly. And here's the normal way we think about it. All right, David said some things in his psalms that were not true about David. So they must be true about Jesus. And therefore, David was you know, prophesying about Jesus. That's cool. Let's move on. Something way more profound, so much more profound is happening in these psalms. It is, you know, listen to this. It is almost as if in these psalms of David, David puts on a mask and he, he speaks behind a mask of one of the members of the Trinity. And what we are able to hear in these Davidic psalms is inter-Trinitarian conversation that's going on between, it's one member of the Trinity speaking to another. It is the Son speaking to the Father, the Father speaking to the Son. You know, the, here's the thing, the, the greatest part of heaven is not going to be seeing our, our, our friends and family resurrected. It's not going to be seeing our kids again. It's not going to be seeing our moms and dads again. It's not even going to be seeing Jesus for the first time face to face. It's not going to be, the greatest part of heaven is not going to be the restoration of all of the universe. Those are all great. I think the greatest part of heaven will be to actually listen to the Father speak to the Son. And listen to the Son speak to the Father. And hear the dialogue that takes place between the members of the Trinity. If you think, it's, it's astounding to think that we could hear that stuff and somehow be caught up into the, that language of love and begin to model that language of love and, and be participants in that language of love, that inter-Trinitarian conversation. Um, the richest words that we will ever hear 
ever hear with our ears are words that are spoken from the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father. We get some of those words in Psalm 16. Uh, Psalm 16, David puts on the mask of, of the, the Son and he speaks these words to the Father. If you look at verse 25 in the passage, I think that he speaks these words to the Father on the cross. I think every serious Christian has at one time or another wondered what in the world was going through Jesus' mind on the cross. What was he thinking? What was he praying? How did he make it through it? What, what was his self-talk? What was his father talk? Psalm 16 gives us a clue. Look at, look at it in verse 25. I, the son, literally keep seeing the Lord my God, the father, continually before me. He says that on the cross. Because the Father is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Now that is very interesting. On the cross, it sounds as though Jesus is to the left of the Father in the place of ultimate uh, authority and the Father has willingly taken his place to the right, uh, which is a place of authority, but is also a place of support. The father has willingly moved to the right of the son from the left. And he says, I I see my father at my right hand. Because the father is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is cheered and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to the Hades, to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay and and corruption. Even though Hades and Sheol, you know, I I said, I preached an entire sermon about this at Easter. And it was like one of the most fun sermons I feel like I've ever preached. Even though Hades threatens me, even though decomposition threatens to, to turn my body into dust, he says, I will not be shaken knowing that the Father will provide for me. He says, oh, my father, he concludes, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. What got the son through the cross? It's these words. The son tells the father that he will be certain that once again he will walk in the paths of life, returning to his father in a moment of intense gladness. And he says, I will experience joy in your presence once again. Whoo! I think that's what he was saying on the cross. Now you, you may reply to me, but what about the cry of dereliction? My God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I would reply to you that, uh, that those two statements aren't, they can be compatible. <laughs> I mean, that Jesus did experience the ultimate forsakenness on the cross. He was filled with dread at the prospect of his hellish death on the cross, but he knew that he would not be forsaken forever. He knew that this, there would, the hero of the story would be rescued. He knew that the Father would fill him with joy once again in his presence. He knew the hope of the resurrection. He told his disciples in the Gospels, I will be raised from the dead. And I think he was speaking Psalm 16. Um, yeah, Peter, that will preach, man. <laughs> Psalm 110 is in the second passage. Psalm 110 is the most quotted psalms in the New Testament. 
It's the go-to psalm to explain the kingship of Jesus Christ. And in Psalm 110, we have David putting on a new mask. He's putting on the mask of the Father. Listen to the words. The Father says, the the words the Father speaks to his son. Uh, Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 2 is another instance of the Father speaking to the Son. Son, you will rule them with an iron scepter. You will smash them as a clay pot. All of that language then uh, uh, manifests itself in the book of Revelation. The vision of Jesus in the book of Revelation, his returning to earth as a triumphant warrior on a white horse leading the armies of heaven, whose name is King of kings and Lord of lords, whose name is also faithful and true judge of the nations, who makes war against the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies, ruling them, it says in Revelation, with an iron scepter as he treads the winepress of God's fury. No wonder Peter says to them, uh, be saved from this corrupt generation. I mean, it happens in part in AD 70, the fall of Jerusalem. When might Psalm 110 have been spoken by the Father to the Son? I want to suggest to you that it may have been spoken right at his ascension. Just as Jesus is going into the heavenly throne room, uh, what if the Father speaks to him Psalm 2 and then Psalm 10? Psalm 2 also says, Son, ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Son, ask me for the world, I'll give it to you. He says that to the Son as he comes into the throne room. And then he says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, if it happened that way, if my, you know, total hypothesis, if that's how it, it all went down, can you imagine what, what heaven sounded like at that moment? When the Father says that to the Son, and then the Son is seated at his right hand, it's just heaven erupting at, at the prospect of it all. I mean, the Bible is so cool. <laughs> and anybody who ever, you know, comes in to our lives I mean, hopefully the one thing they, one of the several things they would see about us is just like how much we love the word and how powerful it is. I don't know that I'd ever seen uh, those Psalms that way until this week. Um, But it's a life-transforming way to read the scriptures. It really is. Verse 36, he, he brings it home, he He brings a sermon home. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. For the forgiveness of your great sins. They were great sins. They were complicit in the murder of the Messiah. They were heavy, horrendous, horrendous sins. And yet he says, even for you sinners, um, the Holy Spirit will be given as a gift. There are, there are literally thousands of stories I could choose um, from church history and people being cut to the heart 
and experiencing um, Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of their sins. One story I came across this week is a story I had never heard, and it's probably a story you have never heard as well. So I'll, I'll share it with you. I think it's especially appropriate today in America with us having so much hatred among Americans, so much animosity. The Japanese pilot who led the attack on Pearl Harbor, his name was uh, Mitsuo Fuchida. He recalls in his autobiography, as he looked down upon the battleships in the harbor, as the smoke was billowing up from the battleships, he said, my heart was ablaze with joy. He was so full of joy. He hated America so incredibly much. Back in Japan after the attack, Fuchida became a national hero overnight. He ended up uh, becoming a farmer after the Allies defeated the Japanese. And later he was called to testify in a war crimes trial that took place in Tokyo. And he thought, this is just one big sham. It's a complete sham. Japan is being humiliated for doing nothing more than the Americans themselves have done. Surely... Surely the Americans committed atrocities too. And so in in that spirit of trying to document evidence of American atrocities, uh, he was interviewing men who were POW'd by the United States. He ran into an old Navy buddy who had been interred uh, in in the United States. He said, how did they treat you? And, And the Navy buddy's answer was, rough, but no atrocities. And he also told them of the strange kindness of an American teenager in the POW camp. Her name was Peggy Colby. She helped at the prison camp as a volunteer worker. She had served these Japanese prisoners with tireless energy and graciousness, he told Fuchida. After three weeks of this, he said, one of us finally asked her, why are you so kind to us? And she answered him, because the Japanese killed my parents. Her parents were Christian missionaries in Japan and they were beheaded by the Japanese in the Philippines when she was just a a child, just a teenager. And at first she said, my hatred for the Japanese was so great. But I knew that my mom and dad had already forgiven their captors for what they had done. And I couldn't keep feeding my hatred. And so not only did I give my hatred up, but I I decided to serve these Japanese prisoners of war. When Fuchida, he says in his autobiography, heard this story, he was dumbfounded. It made no sense to him because, as he later explained, in his moral framework, revenge was a virtue, not a vice. Revenge was was proof of your loyalty to the offended party whose honor you have a duty to vindicate. He pondered, where does such forgiveness come from? And then in one day in October of 1948, he was walking the streets of the city when he passed an, an ex-American soldier who was handing out a pamphlet whose name was Jacob DeShazer, who was one of the bombardiers on the uh, attack, the, the Doolittle attack, maybe um, are familiar with it. 1942, we tried to bomb Tokyo, the, the Doolittle raid it was called. He was one of the bombardiers on that plane. After hearing about the Japanese surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, he, I mean, he just couldn't wait to go uh, bomb them. And so, you know, he signed up for the mission and he hated the Japanese just as much as Fuchida hated uh, the, the Americans. But his plane was shot down on the raid and he and his other crew members had to bail out over uh, occupied China. There he was 
captured as a POW. He spent the next three years in a POW camp, mostly in solitary confinement. And during that time, his hatred for the Japanese completely consumed him. But he started to have a longing to read the Bible. And there was one Bible in the entire uh, prison camp. Finally, you know, he gets passed around to the different soldiers. Finally comes to him. He gets, th- was, how long was it? Uh, three weeks to read the Bible. So he reads it furiously. And on June the 8th, 1944, in that POW camp in China, Jacob DeShazer became a Christian. He felt his hatred for the Japanese melt away. And he promised God that after the war, if I ever get out of this place, I'm going to come back, I'm going to go back to Japan. And I am going to share the knowledge of God's love and God's peace uh, with um, the Japanese there. So he's, Jacob DeShazer is the man who is handing this pamphlet to Fuchida. And he reads it. And here it is again, the power to overcome hatred with love, the power to forgive sins. So Fuchida buys a Japanese Bible. He begins to read it and think about it on, on September the, in September of 1949, he comes to Luke chapter 23 and the account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He hears the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Have you ever wondered, so that's Luke's gospel. Who do you think was, were especially being forgiven? It was all these people who show up at Pentecost 50 days later. But it was hearing Jesus pray for the forgiveness of his murderers. He says, that's what cinched it for me. His hatred began to melt, and he, and he became um, a, a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ. Amazingly, DeShazer was there on the day that he was baptized. Now, his fellow Japanese thought he was a complete sellout. They thought that he was simply ingratiating himself with the enemy. Americans thought, well, they hated him because he led the attack on Pearl Harbor. But it turned out that his faith was, was sincere. He was deeply committed to Jesus Christ. Um, He began traveling throughout Japan, sharing the news of his new faith. In 1952, they asked him to become the chief of staff in the new Japanese Air Force. He declined. In 1957, they offered him the position of minister of defense, which he also declined. Instead, because he wanted, he said, I want to spend the remainder of my life sharing the, the, the good news of Jesus Christ with everyone. And so he did that for the last 25 years. He died on May the 30th, 1976, at the age of 73. 25 years uh, later, uh, he dies from diabetes. But his coming to faith was um, every bit as radical and as controversial as it had been for these Jews who came to faith in Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost. You go back to that original image I shared with you. I'm concluding the sermon now, but I, this image, I love the image of this, of Jesus breathing and the, and the tornado being felt out in the world. It was felt on the day of Pentecost. I mean, it, was, it was felt in Fuchida's day. That, that was the, the, the tornado of the spirit in a, in a different sense. Uh, and Peter, he accuses them. He points the finger at them and says, you crucified him. But it's an accusation that's clearly made in love because there was a greater truth he wanted to proclaim, the truth that you can be forgiven. Even you who are complicit in Jesus' murder, even you could receive the Spirit. Even Jesus would breathe that on you. And on hundreds of millions of people after them, um, on men like Fuchida, and on uh, men and women like us.
in our day. I think it gives us great hope for in, in America where the hatred is so intensified <laughs> between groups, people still are longing to experience the forgiveness of God, forgiveness of their sins and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit. People are longing to get rid of their, their anger and their rage and their malice and to put it away and, and to begin this new life. And that, friends, is what we get to go out and share with the world. Amen.